Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. What a beautiful day it is. We enjoyed some nice rain. It made everything fresh and beautiful. At this time, I would like to invite Kitty Salto to come forward to share with us our mission moment this morning. Thank you, Kitty. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Two weeks ago, on Easter evening, 91 people gathered together. But they were not gathering for worship. They were there to be served what was probably the only warm, healthy meal they received that day. They were served at Temple Adat Elohim by volunteers of the Canal Valley Free Meal Program. Also that night, 40, while at 40 guests, while we were home with our family and friends, 40 guests were offered a safe, warm place to spend the night at the winter shelter. Led by Lutheran Social Services, faith communities in the Caneo Valley serve such a meal every night of the week, every week of the year. Our congregation, the United Methodist Church of Westlake Village, has participated in this effort since it began, give or take, 25 years ago. No one I talked to was quite sure how long, but we know it's been a long time. A lot of hungry people have been served. Also, on Palm Sunday, several of us, about 22 of us, young and old, participated in the Oxfam Hunger Banquet, where we had the opportunity to experience firsthand how it feels to not have enough to eat. We learned that one in six Ventura County residents is food insecure. That means 143,000 of our neighbors lack enough food for a healthy life. The Caneo Valley Free Meal Program is just one of the many ways we reach out to those who are hungry in our community. We raise funds for programs like the Crop Walk and Food Share. We take bags of food to Mana each week. And one Sunday every month, we provide a warm, healthy meal for the Canal Valley female pro free meal program. During the warm months, we're at St. Pascal's Episcopal Church, and in the winter months, we serve at Temple Adopt Halloween. I believe that the greatest blessing of this program is the opportunity to serve people face to face. To, to share the works of our hands in the meals we've prepared, to visit and chat and welcome them and talk about their days and sit and share a meal together, to me truly answers the call of Jesus to love one another. Our participation in the Canal Valley Free Meal Program is a big commitment and it takes the efforts of all in our congregation to meet this obligation. Unfortunately, the numbers continue in to increase. This year, at the temple, we were serving 70 or more guests a meal. And during our times at St. Patrick's, we were up to 50 and sometimes more. So we have many ways that you can help contribute to this program. I have a long list. First of all, we appreciate your monetary donations. There's, there are mission envelopes in the pews this morning for that, um, for that gift. 
We use this money to help the congregation to buy um, paper goods and other supplies for the meals, and occasionally we use the funds to contribute some of the needs of a meal. Next, during the winter months, we are obligated to provide the male chaperone for the overnight winter program. This year, I would like to thank the four gentlemen who gave of their time to help people have a safe place to sleep for the night. They were Charles Lang, Hamid Cooper, David Nincurvis, and uh, Richard Burke. So we thank them for their service. We won't need... <laughs> We won't be, the winter shelter will not open again until next December, but we do have a sign-up sheet at the table today. If you're a gentleman who would be interested in being given a call next year, um, we'd love to know who you are and give us your information. Next, for the last several years, we have used a program called Sign Up Genius, which has really helped things run smoothly. And everyone who might be interested in contributing part of a meal, a salad, a dessert, rolls, or any part of the meal that is needed on any given month. If we need more people to contribute, we send out the sign of genius. Does it mean you have to participate every month, just whenever you might be able? If you are not already on that list, we have a place where you can come and give us your email address, and you can be added um, to that list of people who like to share their gift of cooking with others. Um, also, many of you know that we reach out to many of the small groups in our congregation to take the responsibility for one month during the year to plan, organize, prepare, and serve the meal. Tonight, you will find members of the choir at St. Patrick's who have planned, planned and are preparing a wonderful meal for those um, guests. This year, men's ministry, women's ministry, family ministries, um, and next week the scouts are helping to prepare and organize and prepare a meal. Also, I'd just like to highlight that for many Decembers in a row, the Barmacy Gray family has given as their Christmas gift to those in need the meal each December, uh, which is a great blessing. We're trying to expand the number of small groups that participate in this part of the program. So if you have a Bible study, a Sunday school class, um, a small group of friends, uh, a, a family or two who would like to work together to take the lead, it doesn't mean you have to provide the whole meal, but just take the lead and help, um, help plan and uh, prepare and serve the meal. And if you're interested in that, come talk to us. We'll let you know how that works and how you can contribute. But last but not least, our most important need right now. For many years, two very special women, women Kathy Loeb and Lisa Ross, have led this program as the coordinating committee. They assure that there will be a meal there each month. And they're there that evening, one or both of them, to help make sure that everything runs smoothly and that the meal is complete. Um, Lisa has made the decision to give her gifts and talents to our congregation in other ways, so we're looking for one or two individuals who would like to work with Kathy Loeb, she's very experienced, she knows how it works, to help lead this program. If you're interested in just 
thinking about that and like to give us your name to talk more with Kathy about it. I even have a special little treat for you if you'd like to come and see it at our table. Jesus said to us, I was hungry and you gave me food. The need in our community is great. We serve 12 meals a year. We need everyone's help to make sure that we remain an important part of this very special program in the Kanea Valley. So I thank you to all who have participated this year so far. If you would like to ask more and find out more about how you can contribute, please come and see me on the patio after the service. Thank you. God bless. hymn of celebration today, number 451, Be Thou My Vision, is a text that was written on an ancient prayer, many times ascribed to St. Patrick, who died in 480 in Saul, down Patrick, Ireland. And it was uh, these words that were set as a prayer into the tune that we now have, which is also an Irish tune. And so as we join together, we lift ourselves through centuries of prayer and centuries of music that tell us continually that we might follow the vision that God has given to us. Let's stand as we join together. Number 451, Be Thou My Vision.
As we come then to our time of prayer, I would invite you to turn in our black hymn book to our prayer hymn 2203, In His Time. Let us pray. Eternal God, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pause in these moments now to be in prayer as we bow before the throne of your grace. And in the midst, O Lord, of a hurting world, we often recognize that inside ourselves we hold hurts as well. The hurts we hold of loved ones who are going through difficult times. The illnesses that we often face. The loss of those dear and near to us and whom we love. The situations of life that can come upon us when we least expect it. The things in a busy world which makes it hard for us to take time to stop if even but for a moment, to recognize that your peace can be upon us. And that's why we're here this morning, O Lord, to take this time that we can be here in your presence, in the midst of all the things of life that come upon us in so many different ways, that we can simply understand and acknowledge that even a moment of time paused before you can bring a blessing of eternity to the rest of our week. And so, Lord, gathered together here, we take just a moment, but in silence for prayers or reflection or just understanding your presence here, may we feel the peace of him who says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. O Lord, may we give the burdens to you, for you are far stronger than we, to carry them, but that you can set us free to stand up right and walk from this place today, knowing that those burdens are now in your hands. Hear us, O Lord, in our hearts.
Oh Lord, it's only a moment, but a moment long enough to sense your presence, to receive a blessing of your peace, and to give us the strength to go on for the rest of this week. And for that, O oh God, we give you thanks as we affirm our faith together in words that are ancient and yet ever new, as Christ so long ago taught and as he teaches us once more today that we might pray even as we say our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not onto temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. come forward to receive this morning's gift, tithes and offerings.
back unto you, that we might be faithful to use them for the ministry of your church, here in this community and throughout this world. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. with joy and a willing spirit as we hear the scripture from 2 Kings chapter 23 verses 1 through 3. Then the king directed that all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem should be gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord and with him went all the people of Judah 
all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, keeping his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. All the people joined in the covenant. This is God's word to God's people. May we pray. Glorious God, we give you thanks and praise for the reading of your word, for a word that touches hearts and lives and continues to bring forth a transformation. May we have ears to hear, a willingness to receive and to be transformed through the beauty of your word. We give you thanks this day as we join together in worship and in community in your presence through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I love that old Easter joke. It's one of my favorite ones. Maybe you've heard it before. But three people die and go to heaven. And they're met by St. Peter at the pearly gates. And St. Peter says to them, you know, we're kind of filled up in heaven today. We can only allow one person in. But you have to answer a question in order to get into heaven. So St. Peter says, please have a seat on the benches over there. I'll call you forward one at a time and ask you my question. So the first person comes forward and St. Peter says, what is Easter? First person scratches their chin for a moment and says, oh, that's easy. That's when we wave flags and we sing patriotic songs and everyone's happy and we see parades and fireworks. St. Peter shakes his head, says, that's 4th of July. Go have a seat. The second person comes forward, asks the same question and says very confidently, Easter, that's the time where we sit at a table with all of our friends and we give thanks for, uh, for all of the blessings throughout the year and we eat turkey and stuffing and St. Peter shakes his head and says, that's Thanksgiving. Please have a seat. The third person reluctantly comes forward, once again, uh, just plays with her chin and says, Easter, that's the time where Jesus had been doing his ministry, and he was laid upon a cross, and he was placed in a tomb. And after three days, he came out of the tomb. He saw a shadow, and there were six more weeks of winter. My family back east, and if any of you have family back east, you can probably relate to that six more weeks of winter. I talked to my sister yesterday. She showed us the snow flurries in Virginia. But I think many of us at some point have had an experience where we've experienced a, a proverbial winter, a seemingly endless situation in our faith where the joy offered at Easter and coming out of that empty tomb only to be overshadowed by storm clouds soon thereafter. Or we don't know how to live with the promises of Easter because we don't necessarily know what this new life or this hope or this joy that was offered actually looks like in daily life. Even after Easter, things might not always look or, or feel any different than they did pre-Easter. The things that were a burden to us before Easter continue to be a burden after the blessings that we've experienced and the joys that we've experienced in our life continue to be joys and blessings long after Easter comes to an end. So we might not fully appreciate the blessing in the message of Easter. Sometimes it feels that Easter 
is like any other experiences that we have or many other experiences that we have in our lives where we look forward to something and we build up for it and we build up for it. Yet in the hours and the days and the weeks that follow, we forget what all the buildup was for. Once we have that, that release, nothing appears to change. And celebrations, milestones, accomplishments, achievements, these events that take so much of our focus, so much of our building up to that release, then what? The joy may last for a few days, maybe a month, but then we get back to life as usual and we realize that little has changed within us. Sometimes it feels like the days after Easter are the same in our life of faith. Here we are two weeks past Easter, and maybe we find that our lives haven't changed that much. Our situations are still basically what they were before. You know, the glow of the moment is gone. The beautiful music that is lifted up is now silent. No offense, choir, it still sounds beautiful. <laughs> The pews, filled, <laughs> the pews that were filled with friends and with family are no longer as full. The pomp and the circumstance has died down. So what next? I thought Reverend Beaker's sermon at Easter sunrise hit the nail on the head when he preached on now what? What do we do with this empty tomb? How do we move forward? Depending on our circumstances, finding hope can seem hard or living in the joy of the resurrection can become more challenging the further removed we are from the Easter message. Yet every Easter, we hear the good news that Easter, that at Easter, life is different. Things have changed. We've been given the promise of a new life, one filled with hope and with joy. However, when we don't see those changes coming, when we don't see those changes occurring, we might begin to wonder why. If we want to see a lasting change in our life, though, we must realize that the message of Easter calls in us a response. The Easter message calls for us to respond to that message when we allow God to move within our hearts and within our lives to bring forth a transformation. In order to live out a post-resurrection life, at those times of, so what, what next, why now, what's going on? When those times arise, we need to remember how to cultivate this life, how to grow in this life of the post-resurrection. It's kind of like exercising. The more you do it, the more you see the change. Conversely, if you don't exercise, it's really easy not to exercise. But how to cultivate how to grow in our faith, how to live in a post-resurrection life isn't really anything new. But sometimes we just need a simple reminder. It never hurts to go back to the basics. Anyone who knows me, you know I love the Old Testament. <laughs> Gary groaned. <laughs> and I always say you can't fully appreciate the New Testament without understanding or at least looking at the Old Testament. So I thought I would approach the post-resurrection life from an Old Testament perspective. See, because the post-resurrection life moves from a life without hope to a hope which is built upon the promise of a relationship with God. And that promise goes back to Genesis. However, I want to start with the reign of King Josiah. We're going to start right in 2 Kings. For 60 years before Josiah, Israel, the, the, the nation of Judah, was anything but focused on God. They had two kings, Manasseh and Ammon, who promoted polytheistic worship. 
who desecrated the temple by offering sacrifices and cultic practices. They used witchcraft and spiritists and mediums to consult rather than turning to God for consultation. During their reigns, the 60 years of their reigns, the popular worship was a medley of native or foreign cults, and they would put to death anyone who followed the prophetic law or anyone who followed the traditions of the Israelites. Then along comes Josiah, this child king. At the age of eight years old, he was given the reins of a nation. At eight years old. Eighteen years later, we learn from kings that Josiah chose to repair the temple. He raised money to repair the temple. And as they're repairing the temple, he comes across, or they come across, this book of the law, this book of the covenant, which had been lost, but now was found. It was the law that was given to Moses. When it was shared with, with Josiah, as was custom in their day, he tore his clothes in a sign of repentance, in a sign of mourning. Upon receiving God's law, Josiah expressed and experienced God in a new way that would forever change not only his life, but change the life of the people in Judah for centuries. Josiah recognized there was no hope in the way that they were presently living apart from the law and wanted to bring people back to a relationship with God through the law or through that covenant that God established with Moses. You see, King Josiah called for a national repentance. He said, or he read the law to all who were there, and a covenant was made between God and his people. Many reforms followed. The temple was cleaned. All of the pagan worship objects were removed. The idolatrous places were wiped out across the nation. Josiah restored the observance of the Passover. He removed witches and the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Through the law, he began to cultivate within the people a new life as the people of God. He was to restore that broken relationship with God. You see, this is the joy of the post-resurrection life. For at Easter, the relationship is restored, and we experience God anew in a new, in a new covenant that was written. As such, we're offered a new way to live. Jesus became a new covenant, a new way to offer to live in a relationship with God. But the challenge becomes, what do we do with this covenant? How do we live out this covenant in the 21st century? In part, we no longer live in relationship to God according to the old law, but rather through grace as it was offered at Christ on the cross. When we acknowledge the fulfillment of the law, that Jesus fulfilled the law by God's grace and by his perfect sacrifice then we can live out a new relationship with God given through Christ. We become the disciples of Christ for the transformation of the world. Almost every room in our, in our church, you'll see a little uh, placard that says, that is our mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. When we begin to live a post-resurrection life, we live out the reality of that mission to transform a world in relation to God. Through Jesus Christ. And it brings Josiah to today and how to cultivate a post-resurrection life. How to live constantly in a life of hope and of joy. Not that life will be perfect, but that we learn to experience God's presence in all things. First, we're called to live in community, to live as a church. In 2 Kings it says, The king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the people from the greatest to the least. Can you be a Christian? 
and be all alone? Can you be a hermit and be a Christian? Absolutely. But it's tougher. Can we learn to live out the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Goodness, kindness, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Can we learn to truly love our neighbors apart from community? No, we can't. It reminds me of that, the old saying, the old prayer, I prayed for patience. So God sent me the trying times to test my patience. I prayed that I might love more deeply. So God sent me the people who were the least able to be loved. And it goes on and on. You see, the joy is that we get to come together as a community, and each of you is a vital part to that community. And it's vital to be part of a community because in community, we get to share in relationship with people who help us to learn, who challenge us, who encourage us, who walk beside us, who continue to live in relationship with us on a day-to-day -day basis, who will pick us up and who will weep with us, who will laugh, and who will never abandon us. You know, at the end of the service, whenever we do the benediction, we have you hold hands and we have you give a little squeeze. We do it to make sure you're awake, but we do it <laughs> to remind you that you never go through life alone, that you always have someone there to hold hands with you and for whom you hold another's hand. You see, that's a joy of relationship. That's a joy of community. You will never go through life empty-handed. Second, we're called to live based on the scriptures. In Kings, it says, read in all their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. You've heard it said before, but I'll say it again. The Bible means the basic instructions before leaving earth. If we truly believe this, do we open the scriptures and do we read them and do we constantly turn to them or do they act as a nice placeholder on a shelf? Do they act as a great dust collector that we brush off once a month? Or do we use it in times of trials, which is great. We should use it in times of troubles. But when times are good, we forget about it, which isn't so great. You know, T Timothy tells us that the scriptures are good for rebuking or correcting or teaching, reproof and training. The scriptures become the firm foundation upon which our faith is built. I always laugh, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there's kind of five approaches, if you've ever noticed, to how people read the Bible. Now, this isn't true across the board, but generally speaking, there's five approaches. First, you open up to the Gospel of John, and you read John over and over and over again, and you've read it you know, 15, 20 times. The second approach is you start at Genesis, and you go Genesis, Exodus. By the time you get to Leviticus, you put it down because, boy, Leviticus is dry and boring. You go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth until you get through the Bible. My favorite, we all, all probably have done this, is popcorn reading. We open up and say, uh, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Wait, that can't be it. Uh, okay, here, sing praises to the Lord, O ye saints. Oh, no. And finally, we get to a passage and we say, there you go. That's the passage God wants from me. Or we just keep it on a shelf. You know, third, we live in covenant with God. In the passage, it, we learn that the people made a covenant before the Lord. All the people made a covenant. In, a, in the Bible, covenant has a lot of understandings. But one way, in part, a covenant was agreement between God and God's people where God would make certain promises, but in return require something from people. 
He would require sacrifice. He would require a certain behavior in return for them. And in almost every instance of the major covenants of the Old Testament, there was blood involved. It hurt. It wasn't easy and it didn't come light. But this covenant was made. And at Easter, we receive the new covenant that is laid out in Hebrews. It's a new covenant was touched on in Jeremiah. A new understanding of an old covenant based upon the law. See, for at Easter time, we know that Christ became the new covenant. That the old had passed away. The joy of living out this covenant is that we know as we continue to be faithful to the covenant, God will never turn his back. That God will never negate his promises. Fourth, we're called to live in complete obedience according to the word. It says to follow, keep, perform with all his heart and with all his soul. See, to keep the commandments, or to keep the covenant, they required something. And Josiah and the people were willing to follow the, uh, the commandments. They were willing to be obedient, to keep the, the precepts that were written in the word. And let's face it, we love to pick or choose the passages that we like. If we agree theologically or if we agree practically with a passage, absolutely, let's follow it. But what about when you get to those tough passages? What do you, happens when you get to those verses that you don't like or that don't go with what you believe? We tend to ignore them or, or push them back or say, well, that's not really for me. That was written 2,000 years ago. That can't apply in my life. But we're called to be obedient to the word. Do we live our lives according to scripture or use it as a last line of defense? It's not possible to live a new life in Christ if we refuse to listen or receive the words that God gives to us. The greatest commandment is to love God. The second is like this, to love your neighbor. But can we truly love our neighbor if we don't understand the love that God has for us? Because see, then we begin to love by our standards, not God's standard. The joy of living in obedience to, to the word and obedience to scripture is that it becomes for us a fire, a refiner's fire. It becomes for us a, a, a shaping and a shifting and a molding of our lives and of our person. The joy of living in the post-resurrection is that we can't be the same as before. That we're called to be transformed, to become the body, the hands, the feet, and the voice for God in this world around us. You see, we do have a promise at Easter, and we do have a, a hope for our future, but the hope starts today. It continues every day. It doesn't mean life is going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that life won't be without its bumps, bruises, hiccups, and heartaches. But the promise is that even in those times, even as those storm clouds gather, even as we think that there's going to be this endless winter, God says, I will see you through it. I will continue to walk with you day and night to be a pillar of fire, a cloud with you. God is faithful to the end and knows no different. You see, the joy in this message and the joy in the Easter message is we have a hope of a future. We have the promise that even in the roughest times, God's joy will abound beyond measure. I pray that wherever you might be in your faith, wherever you might find yourself in this walk of life, 
that today you experience a resurrection like none other. That you experience God's peace and presence. That when those times of what now, so what, why God, we can rest assured in the truth and the promise that God will never leave you and God will never forsake you. That is the joy of Christmas, of Christmas, of Easter. <laughs> also joy of Christmas. I was making sure you were listening. That'll be part two. I'm saving that till December. May we pray. God, we give you thanks that in this Easter tide, we can laugh and rejoice, that we can remember the joy that we celebrate in December for the birth of a Savior. But because of that birth, we have the hope and the assurance of today. God, I ask, and we ask that you will transform our hearts, that we remember that there's no burden too great. The anger, the hurts, whatever it is that we hold on to, that we might let that go before you. That as we look into an empty tomb, we don't just see nothing, but we see the reality of your grace that pours out of that tomb that allows us to continue to live with joy and excitement to know that you will never leave us. God, we ask you meet us here today that we become your hand, your feet, your voice, become the reality of you in this world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we join in our hymn of dedication, 368, My Hope is Built.
invite you to reach out and take the hand of someone near you and just give the hand a little squeeze. That means we're alive, that means we're in fellowship, and we are blessed. As the choir now gives us our choral blessing, receive the benediction. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit go forth this day in the power of the covenant that we truly may reach out to the world transforming it as disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.